0: Isaac. He who had received the promises was ready to offer up his only son, of whom he had been told, it is through Isaac that descendants shall be named for you. He considered the fact that God is able even to raise someone from the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The gospel reading is from John 4, verses 46 to 54. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. Glory to you, O Lord. Then he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had changed the water into wine. Now there was a royal official whose son lay ill in Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went and begged him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my little boy dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started on his way. And as he was going down, his slaves met him and told him that his child was alive. So he asked them the hour when he began to recover and they said to him, Yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. The father realized that this was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he himself believed along with his whole household. Now this was the second sign that Jesus did after coming from Judea to Galilee. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ.
1: We are in this Easter season and Resurrection Church, we lean really hard into the liturgical calendar, into the rhythms of the church. And for the historic church, Easter is not just a singular day where we celebrate the resurrection. It's this season where we celebrate the resurrection and then we spend time together as a community asking ourselves, what does that mean? If we are a people who believe in the resurrection, how is that changing our life? And how is that changing the way that we live and what we hope for in the world? And so we're walking alongside historically those who followed Jesus, who then after the resurrection also had 40 days where they were walking around with Jesus in Jerusalem and up in the region of Galilee. And it was their opportunity to go Okay. Now what? (laughs) Like what? What just happened? Because none of us were expecting that to happen. And so we're joining with them and we're joining with John in John's gospel. And towards the end of the gospel, John is very clear to point out to everyone that there are hundreds of signs and that John chose just 7 in order to point to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah that he is the son of God. And so the fact that John is saying I'm like there's so many different things there are so many different signs there's so many amazing things that Jesus did but these 7 I'm gonna pull out from the crowd and highlight these. So this for me brings up a couple questions that I'd like to pose to you. One is each week as we follow with John and we follow along the path he's pointed us down with these signs, why this sign? So even the one we're gonna talk about today, the healing of the official's son, why this sign? Of all the hundreds, there has to be something that is this gem that is so unique that John said, this is what I need you to know. And each of these signs, they're not just pointing to an event, they point beyond the event to an aspect of the kingdom. So what, what is that? So that's my first question. My second question is when we look up from John, and we look into our community and our congregation, and we look around us in the city of Philadelphia, what signs do we see that the resurrection is true? And what signs do we see that Jesus is the Messiah? And are we believing in those signs and letting them anchor our faith? Uh, This is when the educator part of me desperately wants to break you into small groups and say, discuss. Uh, and then we'll reconvene. (laughs) Um, I'm not going to do that, but maybe we could tell some of those stories or share those ideas because it's not just what do I think about these things, it's what do we as a community think about these things, and it's important. And so maybe we can discuss that at coffee hour or over lunch, Um, but I I want to just pose those and have those two questions sit in front of us today. So John is the one. We're going to follow his curated list. And so it's the miracle we saw last week when Jesus was in Cana and turned water into wine. It's the official that we're going to talk about today. Uh, We're going to see the paralytic man. This is the one in Jerusalem who gets healed. That'll be next week. And then the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus walking on water, Jesus healing the blind man also in Jerusalem, and then raising the dead with Lazarus. So there's something about all seven of those things together that say that's how we know Jesus is the Messiah. And John puts all seven of of those signs in the first half of the book. So we're going sign to sign to sign, uh, interspersed with discourses. Jesus has these really interesting conversations with people. And then we get halfway through the book, and all of a sudden we slow down to like a snail's pace. And we very patiently and very slowly say, if those signs are true, how does it lead to Passion Week, this last week in Jerusalem, and how does it point to the resurrection so that On Resurrection Day, we can go, those seven signs are kind of concluding out this old creation, and on the day of resurrection, on the first day of the new week of the new creation, we meet a gardener in the new garden, and now we're living within that. So what is the context for today? Um, Well, I'm going to say, let's start with chapter two, where we were last week, where Jesus was in Cana, and we have that miracle of turning the water into wine. Jesus shows that he has control over the material world. We also see that it's a very um, simple place for Jesus to be launching this big new thing that he's doing. It's, you know, when we say, who actually saw and knew what was going on? Well, we have the servants who are there, people word of mouth, I'm sure it spreads, the disciples. But it wasn't this big, showy, in a place of political power and influence place where Jesus initiates this, uh, this new mission. He does it in a small town. It's a Jewish town. It's an agrarian town town. And in fact, because I'm going to go through a list of places and I feel like I can never do that without a map. I don't know if you already found it, but it's actually in your bulletin. So this is going to be on page 19. So it got a little bit washed out. So you can't see all the texture. I'd love to have a lot more texture and detail on this map. But this is what I would like us to to see because the locations are important because the locations determine the type of person Jesus is talking to. So if you look at the map, number one is is Nazareth. This is where Jesus grew up, where his childhood was, his early adult years. Nazareth was located way up on a ridgeline um, out of the way. It didn't sit right on a trade route. It was a very conservative, very small, very Jewish and messianic focused town. Cana is where he launched the ministry according to the Gospel of John. So Cana is number two. Cana is not that far from Nazareth, um, but it sits low. It sits in the valley, and which is why we go, they're probably an agrarian people, simple, very Jewish as well. Number three is going to be where Jesus and the disciples and Jesus' mom, Mary, and his brothers go right after the miracle of turning water into wine. John says they go down to Capernaum. So number three is Capernaum. This is a whole different context. Capernaum sits right at the north end of the Sea of Galilee. It is on the major international road. Capernaum was a very large city with a gigantic synagogue right in the middle of it, so very Jewish oriented. But the types of people who were there in Capernaum would have been quite mixed. Capernaum sits right at the edge of this political, uh, where you go from one political unit into another. And so we're going to find all kinds of Roman soldiers, tax collectors, traders. But we also have people who are simple. They're farming the land or they're fishing out of the sea. When you stand in Capernaum, you look out over the Sea of Galilee and just off to the east, there is a gigantic... Roman polis. So it's a decapolis city. It sits way up on a hill, like showing this is what the might of Rome does. So when we think of Capernaum, you go, okay, Capernaum, it's a a Jewish town, but filled with the diversity of people where on your horizon line, you can see all kinds of different people living life in a lot of different ways. And Capernaum is going to be the place that Jesus, according to the other gospels, Jesus creates as his hometown during his public ministry. But according to John, Jesus and the disciples don't stay in Capernaum all that long. Uh, because Passover is coming and so they leave Capernaum and they go to Jerusalem which is number four Now Jerusalem, there's uh, a couple things. We could talk about the geography of Jerusalem in that it's nestled up in the hills. It has very short horizon lines, which means the mountains come up all the way around the city. There's no major international road that goes up. There's some important roads because it's an important city, and so the Romans helped to build some roads up to the city. But it's A little bit more isolated. It's not nearly as much um, on the public landscape as Capernaum would be. But Jerusalem, Jerusalem is the gravitational pull for all of Judaism. It's the place of King David's city, right? It's the place of the temple. Anything significant that is going to happen in Judaism has to happen in Jerusalem. And so Jesus and the disciples go up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Then they go out into the Judean hillside and Jesus' disciples are baptizing people. And then Jesus goes north to number five, which is Sychar. This is in the region of Samaria. So it shares similarities with Jerusalem in that it's hill country bound and there's no major road that goes up there. And so there are fewer kinds of people up there and society tends to be very traditional and change a lot slower than the great big huge cities that sit on the main trade routes. And he has very significant conversations with the Samaritans about identity So it is after all of this that Jesus then is going to return to number two, to Cana. But one of the things, this is why I love the maps and the geography, is it shows us that in these two chapters in John, Jesus has been in lots of different places, interacting with lots of different people, and inviting all these different kinds of people to engage him. And the invitation is always, and will you believe? And so then we ask this question, who gets to believe? Who gets to participate in this new creation, in this kingdom that God is bringing? We look at the people Jesus interacts with and it's a wide variety of people. And those people find unity only in the fact that they're all oriented towards Jesus. Okay, so this is our context. We can go back to page nine where we're starting, or I'm getting us closer, slowly, slowly, to our actual passage. John is going to repeat the word believed. He focuses throughout his whole gospel on who is believing. And so he says things like this person, or at the end of an event, this person saw and believed. Sometimes there was no belief right away. Sometimes people, after time has passed, they remember back to what Jesus said and they understand it differently and they believe. Some people hear the testimony of others and they believe. And so we're just focusing on what is it that people need in order to believe. So Jesus returns to Galilee and he goes back to Cana where he has already been. So now we're meeting him where we met him last week. And uh, the verses right before what's printed in the bulletin say there were people in Galilee who saw what he did in Jerusalem, all these other pilgrims who had been there for the Passover, and so they now seek him out. So he's no longer anonymous, he's gaining a reputation, and now people are seeking him out specifically. So now we start our passage. So Jesus, he and the disciples, they go to Cana where he changed water into wine. And then John tells us that there was a royal official whose son lay ill in Capernaum. There's a lot of interesting things in that little mention. One, he is specific to say he's a royal official. So what this means is this particular man works for Herod Antipas. So this is political context here. Herod the Great is the one who built all these great things and has the great for a good reason after his name. But he dies and he's the Herod of the birth of Jesus time period. But when Herod the Great dies, his area that he ruled on behalf of Rome got split and divided into lots of different territories and was given to different people. One of his sons, Herod Antipas, so another Herod which makes everything very confusing. When you're reading the Bible you're like, which Herod are we now on? But Herod Antipas is the one who is in charge of the political area we call Galilee, and, he, and that's up north, and then it's also, he's in charge of this area called Perea. It's on the eastern side of the Jordan River. So this particular person, this royal official, works for Herod Antipas. Now we should also, I'm going to remind us, right? We're specifically saying why these signs of all of the hundreds of things that Jesus did, why does this royal official get to be mentioned? Why is the fact that he is a royal official something significant in the story? We could say, how Jewish is this guy? And the honest answer would be, we don't really know. He works for Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas is kind of Jewish, sort of, mostly in favor of Rome, however. So how Jewish is he? I don't know. Does he deserve to be one of the ones mentioned? Probably not. But that's also part of the point, is who this person actually is. Because now we're looking at who is it that Jesus interacts with to prove that he is the Messiah, and who is it that Jesus interacts with to say this new creation business is underway and you get to participate in what that is. But we also see this royal official lives in Capernaum, which is not a weird thing because Capernaum is right at the edge of these two political units that are really close together. Lots of Romans would be there, big diversity of people would be there. But this royal official who lives in Capernaum, where Jesus has already been, He's probably already heard of Jesus. He knows of Jesus. This guy could have just waited for Jesus to come back to Capernaum, but he doesn't. Probably out of desperation, his son is sick, right? But there is this element of this guy is going to leave Capernaum and go to Canaan, which is this small Jewish agrarian village, in order to seek out the one that he needs to have a conversation with. So he hears that Jesus came from Judea to Galilee and went and begged him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. And Jesus said, unless you, and it's the plural you, so it's you and you people, right? So we get the idea that Jesus is probably talking to the crowds here. So unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe, Now, this is also flagging. This has been a theme that John has been developing in his gospel. And it actually harkens back to when Jesus was in Jerusalem. He had crowds of people coming up all the time and saying, give us a sign. Give us a sign to prove that you can do the things that you are doing. And in the face of those kinds of comment, give us a sign. Prove it, prove who you are. Jesus very rarely actually does something in response to that. Because he often turns around and says, I'm doing what I'm doing because of who I am and because I am pointing towards the truth of the kingdom that is being ushered into the world. What we see in the crowds is maybe something that we ourselves are often guilty of. We like the miraculous. We want to be in awe. We want to see the spectacular. I mean, who in this room has not ever done something like, God, if you're real, let the next m M&M and I pull out of the bag be green. <laughs> right? OK, so maybe it was something else. But I have done this a healthy amount of times, especially in junior high and high school, maybe a few times as an adult. Right? But that is not, Jesus is kind of highlighting that we have this urgency, we have this need, we're like, just prove it, just prove it. But the thing that often comes out is you pull a green M&M out of the bag. You're like, ah, that was just a coincidence. You know what, it's the probability of me pulling green instead of brown, you know, right? We kind of dismiss it as, but that okay, no, no, that, that wasn't actually a sign And that is a little bit what's getting teased out in this particular miracle is Jesus is looking at the people and he's saying, unless you see signs, you don't believe. And so now this official is going to say, but my son really needs you. Like, I really need you to do this thing. And Jesus is then going to say, go, your son will live. And so he's turning this whole idea of all these people who are saying, unless I see signs to prove to me, Jesus goes, but can you believe without seeing the sign first? And I think what it does is it kind of pushes us towards maybe all of these signs are not to lead us to belief in Jesus, but maybe the signs are actually deepening the faith that we already have and kind of helping us ground it down into the reality of the truth that Jesus is who he says he is. And so this next moment, when it says the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started on his way, this is what I've been, I mean this, I just think what an amazing moment. Like what was this moment like? This guy who's coming to Jesus out of desperation And Jesus says, go, has to turn around and walk away with nothing that is a guarantee that what Jesus said is true. He just has to believe that moment. Like, and then what was that journey home? It's 20 miles to get to Capernaum. You're going downhill most of the way. Did he rush? Was he hopeful? Was he fearful about what he was gonna hear? Riley, what what were those moments like for this guy? But then somewhere along the way, his servants come to him and say that his son has been healed. And this guy kind of, he doesn't just sit in the happiness of that. He kind of pushes in a little bit more. And so he asked them, this is in verse 52, he asked them the hour when he began to recover. And they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. And the father realized this was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he himself believed along with his whole household. We have this interesting like repetition of belief. The guy believed in Cana and turned around and did what Jesus said to do. And then he believed again after he saw the sign that his belief was already very well founded. This is an interesting miracle in that Jesus spoke a word in Cana, but the actual healing happened in Capernaum, which I just keep asking this question, who was the audience for this? Like who saw it wasn't in front of a gigantic crowd. It wasn't like masses of people. It's kind of quiet, a little bit like the first sign. I mean, the royal official, his family knows, his son obviously knows, his servants know, And then word of mouth will spread the news elsewhere, but it's still this really interesting Jesus doing things to prove he's the Messiah, and he doesn't go first to the big flashy places of power. He'll end up there, but he starts with very normal people first. It also just kind of makes me realize a little bit, I don't know, it hits home to me that belief in Jesus that he is who he says he is is kind of a continual choice we continually have to make. There is the belief and then he sees a sign and it enriches his faith, but he's choosing to believe again. And then his whole household is going to believe. But we see this over and over. How many times does it say, and the disciples believed Jesus? It's the they're believing because their understanding of who he is, is becoming richer and becoming better. So I just wonder, you know, as we put just the first two signs together, we see a theme of doing what it is Jesus asks of people. So last week, Mary, who was this great example of discipleship, to Jesus is so confident in who he is, that she tells the servants of the house, whatever he says, anything he says, just do it. Right? And then he does. And then we have this a royal official, different status, different kind of person. But Jesus then also is going to tell him to do something, turn around, have belief and go back. And he does it, he follows what Jesus says. And as we go through the rest of John, every time John highlights one of these signs, at each sign, Jesus is asking people, do what it is that I tell you to do. And it's, it's this participation question. It's not just put the spotlight on Jesus, let Jesus do the heavy lifting. It's this is what I'm saying, this is what I'm pointing to, can you participate in that? because the signs are actually the result of what happens as Jesus is pointing to the shape of the kingdom, the characteristics of the kingdom, and who is invited to participate in that kingdom. And we're going to see a large variety of people who are going to be invited. I also think, you know, as we start putting these things together, I almost wonder, and especially with this one, right, where Jesus speaks in Cana and the healing happens in Capernaum, how many of us in hearing that the miracle happened would be like, is that a coincidence? I bet he had already made a turn for the better. His fever was already breaking, wasn't it? We have, especially modern day, we have this um, cynical attitude that we bring to a lot of things, especially when we're talking about religion and the divine world. Right, and there is something, my question I think would be like, what would it take for us to turn from cynicism to expectancy? Because if we believe in the resurrection and that the new creation has started, wouldn't we be expecting to see Life getting better, community getting better, relationships getting better because Jesus says that's what he's in the business of doing. I have a very personal story related to this kind of a question in that I went through a very long season of being uh, very hard and resentful towards Christianity in particular but religion across the board And towards the very end of that season, which didn't end dramatically, but you know, it took a long time. But towards the end of that, I was literally out in an orchard, fists in the air. Prove yourself to me, you know, and like, darn it that you don't care enough about me to prove yourself. Like that was totally my attitude and had been for a long time and had a very distinct impression of, okay, Cindy, but if I prove myself to you, it's your responsibility to remember. You don't get to be a critic forever. (laughs) This is part of why I love the book of Deuteronomy because it tells people over and over and over to remember. But that idea of you don't get to sit in the seat of being cynical forever. And what do we need to do as a congregation to move out of cynicism into expectation? And maybe we can't do that like as individuals on our own. I mean, God knows I've not always been able to do it myself, but that's the value of community, right? Because we get to come together and you get to tell me stories where I've not seen any sign of Jesus and the new creation for a very, very long time, but I hear your story And you can tell me, but I have seen Jesus move. I have seen God move. I've seen that God is in the business of recreating. And we can use our stories collectively as a community to help bolster all of our faith and move into this area of expectation where we start to learn and rehearse that we can expect for God to show up. Because that's what John is telling us. And now we're looking at John and we read these signs from John, but we look up and we see what God's doing in our community as well. And our faith is not proved, but our faith is deepened and enriched because of that. So may this week, may our eyes be opened and may you tell rich stories to the people that you know, the things that God is doing. Will you pray with me? Holy, sacred, beautiful, persistently loving God. We look around us at the world and often are confused about where you are, where you can be found. But then we remember, we, we join with John, we look at what Jesus did, where was Jesus? In so many different kinds of places, not always being flashy and showy, but continually interacting with people on a very rich and personal level and asking them to believe in him and believe that he is who he says he is as the gardener in a new garden, in a new creation. And God, I just pray as we rehearse that together as a community here during part of our worship, that as we leave beyond the walls of the church, that we continue to see the way that you are working. And maybe it's in quiet ways, maybe it's in non-flashy ways, But may we see what it is that you are doing and be encouraged and hopeful that you are the Messiah, the Son of God. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.